I have printed in the bulletin Proverbs 31, and we read that in our responsive reading. So I'm going to direct you to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, and I have to admit, I haven't heard or preached out of Romans 16, I think, in most of my lifetime. But we're going to look at something in Romans 16. It's God's word, and so it's important for us to see and to learn from it. Romans chapter 16. This is the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, and he is basically just listing a bunch of people here that uh, he wants to commend to the Roman church as he writes this letter. So if you'll begin with me and follow along, starting at verse 1 in Romans 16. Paul says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church which is at Sancria, that you receive her in the Lord as become a saint, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. For she hath been a succorer of many, and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Salute my well-beloved Epithenes, who it is the firstfruits of Achaia unto Christ. Greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Salute Urbane, our helper in Christ. And Stachys, my beloved. Salute Apellus, approved in Christ. Salute them which are of Aristobulus' household. Salute Herodian, kinsmen. Greet them that be of the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis, which labored much in the Lord. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Salute Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brethren which are with them. Salute Philologus, and Julia, Nereus, and his sister, Olympus, and all the saints which are with them. Salute one another with a holy kiss, the churches of Christ salute you. And I'm going to stop there. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to continue with our message this morning as we study the roles of women in the church today. Our Father, Lord, we just come before you now, and you've given us your word to teach us, to guide us, to show us the things that you want us to understand and how we should behave. And Lord, as we study this passage, as we look at the things you've given us as examples, Lord, open our eyes to the, to the principles that you want us to learn. I pray that you'd help us to submit to the authority of your word and let your spirit do his work in each one of us. Remove distractions now so that we can focus on what you want to teach us. And Lord, I want you to use me. I ask you to just use me as your mouthpiece and as your instrument to proclaim your word and your truth. Lord, protect me from going astray and just help me to be right in proclaiming your word. And so Lord, help us now, to be led by you. We want to give you this time, and we want you to receive all the glory. And so we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Over the past couple of weeks, we have studied, or been studying, what the Bible says about the role of women in a church. It's a huge question. And um, in order to have that conversation, we had to start with the principles that we began with, 
starting in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, about the creation of mankind, and the biblical foundation of the headship of man and the submission of women that was ordained by God right from the beginning of creation. And the Bible tells us there, and I'm not going to go back and read it all, but we've studied, the Bible tells us that Adam was created first and then Eve. And then um, Paul also references that when he talks to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But he also mandates or or, um, kind of emphasizes the quality of women as far as their standing and value before God. And we saw that as well, how Jesus kind of raised the bar in how society should value and treat women. Um, they were treated very poorly, and women, or, or Jesus changed that for women and elevated them to a status of equality and value before God in, in their standing before God. But in seeing all of that, we see that God, all through Scripture and consistently in teaching us, shows us that there are differences between men and women and that we have different roles to fulfill. And that's true within the church as well. Generally, men are to fill the leadership role in the family. That's very clear. In the church, it is clear as well. And women are to provide that support role in submission or in love. So God created Eve as the helper. She is there to support, to complement her husband. And so men basically are given the leadership in love, and women are given the support role in submission and love. And that's exactly what you read in Ephesians 5 when Paul uses the picture of marriage to show the picture of Christ in the church. And he says, this is what Christ in the church is all about. Christ is our head. We as the church are to submit to him, and marriage is a picture of that. So the roles within the family then become the model for the roles within the church. Because, after all, we're the family of God. And that role structure, that, that authority structure that God built, is carried through into the church as it is in the family. So as we seek to answer the question about biblical roles and functions of women within the ministry of the church, we have to look at it from God's ordained structure of authority. And that's the foundation. And we, we saw that the last couple of weeks. We don't adapt to society or what our culture thinks. We have to stick with God's truth. Now, a lot of people will argue that's cultural, that was just for a specific church, that specific time frame, and we saw last week, no, Paul was very clear in 1 Corinthians 14 and in 1 Timothy 2, this is for all the churches. And he wasn't just talking about all the churches that existed at that time. God has preserved that and passed it down to us. This is truth and principles for all churches if we are to do it God's way. So we have to follow God's structure of authority. In looking at the roles of women specifically in the church, last week we saw one command, basically. In 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, Paul says women are to be silent in the church. In other words, they are not to stand up in leadership and preach and teach in the formal worship service. Okay? That was his command. And we looked at why that was and the substance behind that in God's authority structure. But then remember, it's not just a negative. There's a huge positive that comes with that negative command to women. It says you are to to step down as far as leadership or step back and and keep that role of support and submission behind the the men. But Paul says in, uh, in 1 Timothy 2, let them learn. That was a huge plus for women because at that point... 
in history, in most cultures, women were not even allowed to be educated. They were, they were you know, very much um, stepped on in society and held down almost as a piece of property is how they were looked at. And so Christ elevated the status of women and the privileges of women. And here it's carried in the church when Paul says, no, you're going to maintain your role of support, but you have this opportunity to learn right alongside the men. And you have the opportunity to worship right alongside the men. And so there's a major plus that's given to women even in the negative command. So from the beginning of creation, God has given us this structure of authority that we have to maintain. And that's the important part. If we're going to do it God's way in God's church, then we have to follow his word. So we've covered the negative aspect of women are not to teach and preach or be elders and leadership of the church, okay? But the question is, what ministries can women participate in and not violate this principle of leadership that God has given us? And here's the answer. Basically, everything else that needs to be done in the church. Okay? And we're going to spend some time looking at God's word today to see how that fleshes out. Okay? But the guiding principle is this. They cannot take authority over men and lead in the church, but... They can serve in basically every other capacity. And we have examples in Scripture, and the reason we read Romans chapter 16 this morning is because there are at least eight women that Paul specifically addresses in this passage. And we're going to look at them in a little while. But he commends them for their work and their labor in the Lord. What they're doing, ministering within the church and within the congregation. So there's... All, all kinds of opportunities for women to minister within the church, excluding that one leadership role of teaching and leading as elders. Okay? Now, I want you to go back to, to um, Proverbs chapter 31 very quickly. We read that for a purpose because when we ask this question about women's ministry or what ministry do women have in the church, I'm going to start with this principle. Your ministry in the church begins with your ministry at home. Now, this is not just for women. It applies to all believers, men as well. And so it also applies to women. But our ministry in the church begins with our ministry at home. Now, as we studied the elders, we looked at qualifications for elders. And remember, there were some very strict qualifications about an elder's home life how he ran his home, how he managed his home, how he raised his children and taught them and disciplined them. And that's part of the evaluation to see if someone qualifies to be an elder. So men are not exempt from this home life evaluation. Women are just as uh, important in this as well, but it applies to all of us, men and women. Your ministry in the church begins with your ministry at home. What are you doing at home? And that kind of will give you an, a door as to what you're available to do in the church. So in Proverbs 31, what we read is about the virtuous woman. And we start at verse 10. And we've read this, so I'm not going to read the whole thing through again, but I am going to go verse by verse very quickly just to show you this model woman that is given to us in scripture and something that was just pointed out recently to me and I, I it's easy to lose track of when you read this especially as a as a wife or a mother 
And you get to the end and you go, wow, I am a failure. Okay? This is the model, the ideal. Okay? And this is not a picture of one day in the life of this woman. Okay? This is a picture of the progression over a lifetime of how she has served. So we can't, I don't want you women to look at this and go, man, this is what I have to do every day. No, that's not the idea here. It's an ideal that God has set, a goal that we work for in our lives as women, in your lives as women, so that you can see what God is looking for in your life. And here we, talk, we see the ministry of a woman, okay, the, the virtuous woman. So let's look at these verses, starting at verse 10. He says, who can find a virtuous woman for a price as far above rubies? So very valuable. A virtuous woman is very valuable. Now keep that word virtuous in mind because that, keeps, that becomes the core of everything that we talk about here. Verse 11, the heart of her husband does safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. This means her husband trusts her with the household. And there were many men back in Bible times who did not trust their wives with anything. They kept all the wealth locked up. They kept all the things locked up. They basically would lock up their wives sometimes in a room where she couldn't touch anything while they were gone. So they didn't trust their wives, but this says the husband can safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. He doesn't worry that she's going to steal or pilfer away the goods of the household. He trusts her. That's an important point because trust is the foundation of every relationship. All right? So here he trusts her. Verse 12, she would do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She does everything that benefits her husband, and she never speaks or does evil toward him. See, this is basically just 1 Corinthians 13, love in action. Okay, that's what she's carrying out here. Verse 13, she seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. The willingly, worketh willingly with her hands, obviously, this is echoed throughout this passage. She's willing to work hard, to do what it takes to take care of her family, and not always looking for an easy way out. In other words, she's not lazy, okay? And she's ready to take on any task necessary for the good of the household. Verse 14, she's like the merchant ships. She bringeth forth her food from afar. If you jump down to verse 24, there's another reference here to the merchants. It says, she maketh fine linen and selleth it and delivereth girdles to the merchant. And the reference that, the, 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 that Solomon is making here is, uh, I'm sorry, the, the author is making here is that this, this woman, this mother and wife, operates kind of in the same venue as the nation operated in their commerce. He's referencing the increased commerce and prosperity of Israel under Kings David and Solomon. Okay? So the woman here is providing for, but it's not just spending. It is kind of building, not the wealth necessarily, but the substance of the family. Okay? Think of it in the terms of commerce. Commerce is not just spending. It is trading goods back and forth. Okay, And that's the idea that he brings here, and he talks specifically about the clothing, how she makes it and she sells it, so that there's an income for the family. So it's not just she's spending her husband's money. There's this idea of commerce that happens. Verse 15, she rises also while it is yet night, and giveth meat to her household, and a portion to her maidens. 
And this just ex it shows the, the lengths that she will go to. She gets up earlier than everybody else. She supplies for everybody. And she makes sacrifices for her household. And again, it's a demonstration of true love in serving others. That is the key here. It's true love in service. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she planteth a vineyard. Again, we see this investing for the family good. She considers a field. It means she has done her work, her homework on it. She studies. She knows, is this a valuable field to buy? Is it worth the price that's being asked? Can it be used profitably for the family? And then it says, she used, with the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. In other words, the money that she's gotten in other ways or the substance that she's gotten in other ways, she uses that to build this vineyard, which is not only a source of food for her family, but is also a, a source of food that she can sell. And again, remember the idea of commerce. She's kind of bringing in substance to the household. So she's helping to build the household. Verse 17, she girds her loins with strength and strengtheneth her arms. I mean, she takes care of herself. She keeps herself in shape so she can help her family and serve people. Verse 18, she perceives merchant, that her merchandise is good. Her candle goeth not out by night. In other words, what she buys or produces for her family was quality. It's not cheap junk. In other words, she's not wasting money on things. And the second part says her candle goeth not out by night. That doesn't mean she stays up all night. Okay? Um, and I've known people go, yo, look, your wife's supposed to stay up, you know, husband's supposed to sleep. No, that's not what it means. Okay? She gets sleep. It says that she girds her loins with strength. She wouldn't do that in the verse previous if she didn't get the sleep she needs. But this has the idea of, of safety, leaving a candle burning so that you know, robbers don't come in. They know someone's at home. Or, or if travelers are coming, there's a light burning that welcomes them in. And we'll see this hospitality in a minute. If you go to the, the parable of the ten virgins, remember five did not fill their lamps with oil and they ran out. And, and, and Christ, when he taught that, was giving a reference to somebody who is prepared. So here it's this preparation. She plans ahead. There's always a lamp burning for other people's safety and for their welcome. Okay, you see the picture that's being built here. Uh, verse 19, she layeth her hands to the spindle, her hands hold the distaff. These are tools that are used in making cloth. So again, you see the, the industry that she's engaged in. Verse 20, she stretches out her hand to the poor, yea, she reaches forth her hands to the needy. Now, here we just all of a sudden jump outside of the scope of the home, in a sense. But again, it shows her heart. She's not focused just on her family and herself. She looks to the needs of other people as well, and specifically the poor and the needy. Now, we are commanded in Scripture to watch out, to help the poor and needy. We've been studying this in Bible study when we studied living generously and loving generously. How we ought to approach and live with and build relationships with the poor and needy people in our world. And here, she's the model of that. Verse 21, she's not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. Again, she's prepared. She has uh, provided for her family what they need. And this is a preparing ahead. Verse 22, she maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. Now, this is an interesting verse because this one talks about what she wears. 
up to this point, if you think about all the things she's doing and all the work that she's doing, in our mind, what we can picture, maybe, is a scullery maid, right? Always scrubbing the floors, always cooking the meals, always doing this. Her hair's disheveled, and she's just got kind of a work clothes on. This completely blows that picture out of the water. It says she makes herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. Silk and purple were reserved for royalty. It means that she presents herself with honor. Okay, Even though she's doing all this work and serving people, she presents herself with honor. Why? Because she reflects the honor of her husband, and she doesn't want to make him look bad. Verse 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. Why? Because his wife is known to be honorable. And again, remember, a family was judged, especially in the church, and this is, I know this is the Old Testament, but the principles apply. A family or a man was judged by the condition of his family. And here, she honors her husband and how she presents herself. Her husband is honored by others because of the condition of his family. Verse 24, she maketh fine linen and selleth it, delivereth girdles unto the merchant. We read that already about the commerce. Verse 25, strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. It's not about her appearance or about her activity. The virtue that she establishes here is in her character. That's why it says she's clothed with honor. That's what people know her for. And it says she shall rejoice in time to come. She has no fear of the future. And God will reward her in the future for this, this industry and this busyness, not just busyness, but the work that she does in serving other people. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. Okay, so now we're talking about someone not only who is educated, but who understands the truth of God and is able to apply it. She helps others to understand it specifically those of her household, okay? She opens her mouth with wisdom. In her tongue is the law of kindness. Remember Ephesians 4 tells us, speak the truth in love. Here it is. She uses kindness in how she addresses people. Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and eateth not the bread of idleness. Again, her focus, this is kind of a summary, her focus is on serving and providing for her household. And she is not lazy about it. She does not shirk that responsibility. And then 28 through 31, we have the results. Her children arise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done virtuously, but thou excellest them all. Favor and deceit and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. See, there's the motivation behind all of this. It's a woman that fears the Lord. And submits to him in his authority and what he says for her about her life. Verse 31, give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. Now, what you see here, again, is the model for a wife and mother, a virtuous woman. Okay, But what we've read in, in Proverbs 31 is if this is the goal that women are supposed to shoot for, especially Christian women... The entire context of everything that we just read is in the context of the home and her household. So where do we see her ministry in the church? 
And this is why I say, if you're not ministering at home, you can't minister in the church. Because your first ministry, both men and women, your first ministry is in your home to fulfill the roles and functions that God has called you to. Now, we just read Proverbs 31, and it gives a very detailed description of what the model wife and mother looks like. Now, again, it's going to be probably impossible for any of you women to say, yeah, you know, I did all that yesterday, okay? But over your lifetime, that's the goal that we work for. But again, in the context of ministry, it starts at home. That is your primary role is to function at home the way that God wants you to function. So that gives us this primary principle for women's ministry in the church, or for if her ministry and work in the church cause her to neglect or not accomplish her ministry at home, then she's wrong. You can't abandon the primary role to do something else and say, well, that's what God has called me to. So we start with this women's ministry in the church. Your best ministry in the church starts with your own family. And if you're faithfully ministering there, then God will open opportunities from that to minister to other people in the church. Now, again, it happens with men as well. If I didn't have my family in, in, um, under proper control, if I didn't teach them and manage them and discipline them and train my children up and love my wife the way the Bible says, I wouldn't qualify to be standing here leading the church and teaching the scripture. So we have to start with that principle. When you talk about anybody, specifically women here, if you're not ministering in the things that God has called you to do in your roles and functions at home, then you do not qualify to minister in the church in any capacity because you failed in the primary roles that God has called you to. So that's principle number one, and that's important because I think too many homes are being neglected And I know, I've been through a lot of churches in my lifetime, and I've seen homes that basically were falling apart, and yet the parents were active in the church and always at the church and always doing things, and their kids literally were going to hell. They failed. If we don't minister at home, then we failed in our calling that God has called us to. So it brings us to this question, what ministry then, if she's functioning at home the way she ought to, what ministry can a woman have in the church? I just gave you, number one, first, a married woman can find fulfillment in the church by doing whatever she was designed to do, helping and supporting her husband. Remember, Eve was made as a help meet for Adam, a support for him. Okay, that's God's role for her. In Genesis 1, 26, it says, God said, let us make man in our image after the likeness, after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now, in those verses in Genesis chapter 1, God says this. Let them have dominion over all of creation. Who's them? Man and women. Together. So women are not excluded 
from ruling or from managing or from operating in this sphere of dominion that God has given us in Genesis 1. They rule together. They work together. That's the way God made it. But in Genesis chapter 2, God says, and, and this is a preface in Genesis chapter 1. It kind of gives us a summary. Genesis chapter 2 gives us the details of the creation process. Adam is there by himself, and in verse 18, God says, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him, as I just said. So God created Adam, created Eve as a support role. They rule together within the roles that God has given them. Okay? And here we come upon one of the great problems of the modern movements of women's lib and equality and all of these things. And unfortunately, it's all based on a humanistic philosophy that pervades our society. Because we are told in our society and in our culture to live for yourself, to fulfill your dreams. You have everything within you to accomplish whatever you want, right? Discover your purpose. Well, if you want to discover your purpose, look at Scripture. But if you go to our culture with these principles, you're chauvinist, you're bigoted, you are prejudiced. But that's what God says. We're not trying to hold women back. We're just trying to follow God's order of how we're supposed to live in this authority structure. Okay? So the problem that we face is that culture and society are pressuring the church, even, to abandon God's word and just adapt to what's popular and what fits in with society. And so in, and even in churches, men and women basically are, well, I'll just give you one example, they're abandoning marriage. I mean, look at how many people are living together without marrying And the whole reason for that is because women and men don't want to give up their identity and their dreams and their goals to be committed to one person. Remember God said, and they too shall be one flesh. That means both individual lives evaporate and now they have a new life together where they're both living to serve each other. Sounds a lot like salvation, doesn't it? We give up our old life and are made one with Christ to serve him. That's what marriage is. But people don't want that responsibility. They don't want to become one life. They want their individual lives. They want their own dreams, their own goals. I want to accomplish my own purpose. And that's totally contrary to what God tells us marriage is supposed to be. So I'm not going to give you a big dissertation on marriage, but we have to understand this structure. But here's the point of it. Women are not to find their fulfillment in doing her own thing, going her own way, or in the church, even in having her own ministry. She's to find fulfillment in functioning within the role that God has given her as a support to her husband. Okay? She's her husband's helper in ruling the home, and she's her husband's helper in ministering in the church. So you want to start with primary ministries for women? Married women, you're there to help your husband. Whatever his ministry is in church, support him in that. Now, if my wife didn't support me in ministry, I would be in the loony bin by now, okay? I couldn't do this without her, and God knew that. She supports me. She encourages me. You know, there are 
this may be a revelation to all of you, but there are times when even I get discouraged. And I, I tell my wife, you know, I don't know if I can keep going on. I just, this is hard. And she encourages me. And God knew I needed that. And we all need that. Okay? That's what marriage is supposed to be. But the amazing thing is that when a woman fulfills her roles in the church and in the home in supporting her husband, God will open all kinds of ministry up through those channels. You don't have to go create new things for that. So if we put this in the context of ministry in the church, 1 Timothy and Titus talk directly about what women should be doing in the church. So I want you to go to 1 Timothy chapter, I'm sorry, Titus chapter 2, first of all, because we're going to look at specific ministries that God has called women to or that God has given us examples in. Now here's the hard part about this. When you look at scripture, there's no specific ministry that God says women do this except for their ministry at home, okay? There are examples that we can look at. So there's where we're going to go. Now, here's an example of a command given to women. First, in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. I should probably get out of First Timothy and get to Titus. That would help. There we go. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Now, Paul is, is instructing Titus, who is a pastor. And he's saying, here's the things that you are to teach different people. And he says in verse 1, speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. And then he says, here's the specific things to teach each group of people. In verse 2, the aged men, for them to be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, and in charity, and in patience, okay? So here's the instructions for for older men. And then he says in verse 3, the aged women, or the older women likewise. He said, here's what you instruct them, as far as what they're supposed to do. He says, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Now, I just want to point out that phrase that ends that verse. What does it say? Teachers? Wait a minute, didn't Paul say women aren't supposed to teach in the church? No, he said they're not supposed to teach and lead as elders in the form of worship. But here he instructs women to be teachers of good things, older women specifically. Go on, verse 4. That they may teach who? The young women. So in other words, we're teaching by example and by word of mouth the younger women those who are going to follow in their place. And he says to teach them what? To be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So what ministry does Paul list here as far as what Titus is supposed to teach the older women that they're supposed to teach the younger women? What they do at home. How to be good wives and how to be good mothers. See, the primary ministry of a wife or of a mother is in their home. And Paul says that right here. The older women, because they've done it, hopefully, now can teach the younger women to be good mothers, to be good wives, to live in holiness. Okay? And he goes on. He goes on and talks about the young men. Now, who doesn't he address here? We have old men. Old women, young men. 
Young women. There's no young women addressed here except that they're to learn, right? They're the learners from the old women. There's a reason for that. We'll get into that in just a minute. Okay? But when he talks about specific ministry, even Paul addresses the home as the primary function of the women. And that's where they should be ministering. And if they're not doing that, then they really have no ministry because they're failing in God's role for them. Now go over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm going to fill in the blank. We don't have younger women in Titus, but we do in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Look at verse 14. I will, therefore, that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Where's their ministry? At the home. Okay? Paul says that. Now, if you read all of, verse, of chapter 5, this section of Scripture deals mainly with widows and how the church should respond to the needs of widows. And it says there are widows indeed, those who have no family, nobody else that can help them. Okay, and the church will take them on to help support them, but they have to be dedicated to serving in the church in order to do that. But it talks about other widows, widows who are not going to dedicate themselves to the church, so the church doesn't take them on. And it talks specifically about younger women, and Paul says, no, they're supposed to get married. Okay, now God hasn't called every woman to get married, I understand that. But as far as ministry in the church, their primary ministry starts at home. Okay? So in the church, where does that ministry happen? What, what happens at home when a woman is fulfilling her ministry at home? Well, she has children, right? Hopefully, if God gives you the blessing of children as a mother, that's your primary ministry then. And your goal then is to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord under the leadership of your husband. You work together in that. Now, husbands, I'm not going to let you off the hook because God does not say, husbands, tell your wives what to do and let them do it all. In fact, Paul addresses fathers and husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives. But then he says, provoke not your children to wrath. Okay? We're supposed to train up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If the husband is the leader of the home, who's responsible for that? The husband and father. The wife works in conjunction with him under his leadership to fulfill that. Now, in many homes, especially in our society, the husband works outside the home. It's just the way our culture works now. It's not possible for the husband to be there 24 hours a day and fulfilling the practical teaching and raising and all these things that have to be done with children and taking care of the household. And that's why we read in Proverbs 31, the wife primarily doing a lot of these functions. Because she's working in ruling the home with her husband. And here, the goal then is that women are to teach their children. Now, I just showed you where Paul says the older women are to teach. So there's opportunity for teaching, for older women to teach younger women. And there's opportunity for younger women to teach as well. Because they have children that need to be taught. Now, if you want to extrapolate from the family into the church, you can say that a great ministry for younger women is to teach children. 
if that is their capability or their gift that God has given them. Now, there's lots of opportunities for service. I'm not saying if you're younger women, the only opportunity you have is to teach Sunday school for little kids. Okay? But if God has given you the gift of teaching as a younger woman, there's an opportunity to use that gift in ministry. So all what Paul teaches here correlates perfectly with what we saw in Proverbs 31. It starts in the home. We have to understand that. And if the home isn't functioning right, then nothing you do at church is going to function right. And God's not going to bless it. But there's ministry opportunities within the church. Women, older women teaching younger women, younger women teaching children, all working together in in harmony under their husbands or, or beside their husbands in the church so that they don't, and and he says, so that they don't bring reproach upon the name of Christ. Now, if this was just a suggestion, he wouldn't have added that phrase. Okay? If we don't do what Paul's suggesting here, then we bring reproach upon the name of Christ. And then we've abandoned God's way. So I've talked about younger women, older women. What about people who are divorced or single? What can they do? Okay, women specifically. Is there opportunity for ministry? Well, go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're there, verse 9. And he says these directions. Let a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of, I'm sorry, let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported of for good works, if she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. Now, again, we're talking about these widows indeed. But there's an evaluation process that Paul says, if you're going to take on a widow, the church is going to basically take them on as an official servant of the church. There's a qualification. And these are things not that she has to do going forward, these are things that would mark her life as she raised a family or as she lived as a single woman or even as a divorced woman. And he says, here's the qualification. If she have brought up children or taught children in the way of the Lord, if she has lodged strangers, there's hospitality. Washed the saints' feet, that's service and servanthood. If she has relieved the afflicted, that's visiting people and helping people who are sick. So this ministry that goes on here, and and there's a great list here of ministries that women can perform within the the congregation and within the scope of the church, but this is the, the definition of her life. She's all about serving other people, and she doesn't have to go around, you know, getting the rewards and the certificates and, you know, I did this and I did that. It's a meek and humble spirit that is willing to serve. So Paul, in this this uh, description of widows indeed gives us a list. Here's some great ministries that women could perform regardless of how old they are. And it's all in the context of serving one another in love. Okay? Now, we have a list of stuff that I just gave you as far as women ministering the church. Okay? All of it's within the, the capacity of service. I want you to go back to Romans 16. Because when we look at service, when we studied uh, deacons, we saw that nowhere in Scripture does it really define the specific functions of a deacon. It just defines their qualifications. 
Romans 16 starts with this verse, I commend you unto you, Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Sancria. Now, when we talked about deacons, I said, this is an interesting verse and an interesting um, scenario here that we see here. Because nowhere else do we see a woman designated specifically as a servant of, a, of another specific church with this language used here. And so what Paul may be saying to us is that Phoebe, a woman, there's no doubt about that, but Phoebe is a deacon or deaconess of the church of Sancria. Okay? The word, I'm going to tell you why I believe that. And there's a great debate about this, and not all commentators believe this, but we'll talk about this just so we all kind of land on the same page, okay? Here's the reasons why I believe she's named as a deaconess. If Paul meant to identify her only as a servant in general, he could have used the Greek words diakoneo, which means servant, or diakonia, which means serving, and yet he chose the word diakonos, which is the same word that's used in, uh, in 1 Timothy 3 for deacon. Okay? So he chose a word specifically that he, had previous, that he also used to define a deacon. When you look at the structure in the Greek, in the phrase of the church, she is a servant of this specific church, and I'm going to explain this in a minute, it points to a position of responsibility within the congregation. So she is appointed to this position. Okay, that would be a deacon. If she's serving, appointed as a servant of the church, that's a deacon. That's what we looked at when we studied deacons. Now, in the Greek, many Greek scholars agree that both the participle and the genitive case, which put together, give us this phrase, being a servant of the church. And you have to understand Greek to get all this. But the, the, the participle, being, and then the genitive case of being a servant indicate that Phoebe occupied an official position of an appointment in the church as a servant or a deaconess, okay? So there's very good evidence to look at Phoebe here and say she's named as a deaconess. Now, we don't have to say that. We can say, well, she was just a servant in the church, okay? Go back to 1 Timothy. First Timothy, and I know we're getting long, but I want to finish this up. First Timothy chapter 3. Verse 11, this is the context of the qualifications for elders for deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in the middle of the qualifications for deacons in verse 11, in the King James it says, even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. If you look at the ESV or some other translations, it says, let the woman, women, okay, so the question is, is Paul talking about the wives of deacons, or is he talking about a deaconess, or both? The word wives here is better interpreted as women, okay? In the Greek, it's the word gune, or gunaikos, which means woman in general. So it's not specifically designating a wife. The phrase even so, or in the same way, depending on what version you have, links women with deacons and elders. Because he says, elders, here's the qualifications. Deacons, here's the qualifications. And in the same way, women, here's the qualifications. 
So he's kind of pointing out not necessarily a third category, but he's just given his qualifications for deacons, and then he says, and the women also are to be this way. Okay? And in fact, if you keep reading in verse 12, he goes right back to the deacons. Let the deacons be husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. Third of all, the participle, or the possessive article, I'm sorry, the possessive article there, if you read in King James, it says their wives, that is not in the Greek manuscript. Okay, that was added for clarification by the translators. There's no definite article or possessive article in the Greek. So basically it just says women are too. There's no connection necessarily with a husband or with somebody that was previously mentioned other than these are qualifications for them. So if Paul wanted to connect this and say, well, these are the deacons' wives, he could have said the women of the deacons and add the word diakonon or diakonos, but he didn't. One other thing that we look at in this passage is that Paul goes through all of these qualifications for elders. He goes through qualifications for deacons, and in the middle of the deacons he says, if it's their wives, how come there's no qualifications for the elders' wives? Shouldn't there be qualifications for them as well? Or do we assume that this applies to all of the wives, but it's in the middle of deacons? Okay, so there's too many questions to just say adamantly, this is only talking about deacons' wives, and it's not talking about a position of leader, or not just leadership, but a position of servanthood appointed in the church. Okay? Now, you ask this, Question, okay, well, if Paul wanted to specify deaconesses, why didn't he just use the Greek word diakonisa for deaconesses when he wrote this? And that's an easy answer because that word hadn't been invented yet. They didn't have a word for female deacons. And so Paul just used this the word women in the context of describing deacons. Okay? So with all of that substance and all of that in front of us here, I think there's sufficient evidence in Scripture to allow for deaconesses within the church as an official position. Now, I'm not saying a position of leadership over men. I'm saying a position of an official appointed servant of a church. Okay? And that's the difference. And this is, I think, one reason why many churches do not allow for women deacons because, as I mentioned before, there's no specific definition of what a deacon is supposed to do in Scripture other than serve. And so many churches have taken the position of deacon and almost elevated it to the point where deacons are acting and functioning as elders. And of course, you can't put a woman in that position, biblically. And so they just say, no women deacons, okay, or no deaconesses. This is true in many Baptist churches where they have one pastor and a board of deacons. And I've talked to several Baptist ministers, and they basically have said to me, yeah, we call them deacons, but really they're functioning like elders, okay? And I think that's one reason why there's been such a taboo on even, you know, coming across this word deaconess, because we haven't defined deacon. What is a deacon? Well, it doesn't say. It just says there's servants in the church. Okay? So if we allow for deaconesses, what would women then be able to do in that position? What does a deacon do? Serve. Now, doesn't that match up with everything that we read in 1 Timothy chapter 5? And 
in other passages that talk about the work that women do in the church. They serve. So when we talk about positions, there's no authority necessarily, and you couldn't appoint a woman as a deaconess if she had authority over men. That would violate the principle that we started with. But if we appoint them as official servants of the church, what's the problem? As long as they're under the authority of their husband and under the authority of the leadership of the church and the elders, we're still within God's structure of leadership and authority in the church. So deaconesses would then serve under the authority of their husbands, and many times deaconesses are the wives of the deacons. Okay, And again, we can put that in no matter how you interpret verse 11 in 1 Timothy 3. That fits. Okay, they're wives. Well, their wives are serving. And they become deaconesses almost by default. Now, the question, and this is kind of an odd question, but if you go to 1 Timothy 5, you look at all of those things, and it talks about widows indeed. Were they deaconesses? No, because I think Paul would have addressed that specifically. These are widows indeed. It's a specific scenario. They possibly could. But um, first of all, it would exclude any widow under the age of 60. Okay, and I'm starting to approach 60, and I'm starting to feel, you know, uh, not as energetic and not as uh, strong as I used to. And so, you know, there's limitations on what we can do. But there's always opportunity for service is the whole point. Now, we read Acts chapter 16. The reason I read Acts chapter 16, because all through that passage, you have a list of women that Paul is pointing out who labor in the Lord. And he repeats that phrase over and over and over. Okay? He points out Mary. He points out Hermes. He points out uh, several others. And, and the phrase that goes along with all of them is they labored in the Lord. They served. Okay? It doesn't mean they led. It doesn't mean they preached. It doesn't mean they, they were up in front of the church you know, instructing people in, in doctrine. It means they labored, they served people in the church. I'm going to give you a quick list as we finish up. In Acts, obviously, that's our history of the church. And there's women that are mentioned in Acts. In Acts chapter 1, if you want to turn, you can. I'm going to go quickly through these. In Acts chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, when they were come in, they went up into an upper room talking about the disciples and the apostles, where both Peter James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James. That's the the disciples left over after Judas Iscariot killed himself. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. So here we have an example right at the beginning of Acts, even before Pentecost, of women praying together with men as a group. And these are the apostles, remember, not just a group of men. In Acts chapter 9, verse 36, talks about a woman named Tabitha or Dorcas. Now, the, the, the story that you read here is that Tabitha or Dorcas got sick. She was a very um, industrious and very diligent servant in the church. She got sick and died, and Peter came and raised her back from the dead. But in Acts chapter 9, verse 36, it describes her. It says there was a, at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, not a formal apostle disciple, but a follower of Christ. That's what the word disciple means. She was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, or acts of charity, which she did. So here she's known and 
specifically pointed out as a woman known for her charity work to the poor and needy people. Didn't we see that as a ministry of, of other women in the church? In Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul says, I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with my other my fellow laborers who na- whose names are in the book of life. Now, there's debate about whether Euodius and Syntyche, those are both women, were the ones that Paul is talking about here in verse 3 when he says, help those women which labored with me in the gospel. It's possible. But the point is, he specifically says in verse 3 in Philippians 4, help those women which labored with me in the gospel. The word labor means suffered alongside. So these are women not necessarily that are out preaching the gospel in the synagogue or in formal worship services. It means they've worked with Paul to help him, to support him, and probably, on an individual case, brought the gospel to women city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto things which were spoken of Paul. Thank you. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. So here's a woman, Lydia, in Acts chapter 16, that's singled out again for her hospitality. She opened her house not only for the apostles to stay there, but if you continue reading in Acts, we find out she actually opened her house for the church to meet there. Okay? So, again, this idea of service. In Acts chapter 18... Uh, I'm not going to read the entire thing, but all through Acts chapter 18, uh, at first we're introduced to a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. They were from Rome, but when Claudius was emperor, he expelled all Jews, including Christians, out of Rome. And so Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla here in, um, in Corinth. And he says that they traveled with him from Corinth to Ephesus, and at Ephesus... Priscilla and Aquila stayed, and Paul went on. So Priscilla and Aquila are this couple. Later on, in verse 24 of Acts chapter 18, it says, A certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. So here's an example of Priscilla, who actually is involved with her husband, we can't miss that point, with her husband in helping someone understand the way of God. Now, this was a private setting, not public forum. Okay, so there's even opportunities here 
in which we're given the example of a woman helping to teach by her husband's side another man. Okay, and Paulus was a great uh, evangelist and a great preacher that helped the church immensely. Now, I could go on, okay? The, we had the eight women listed by Paul by name in, in Romans chapter 16. So you see women are named over and over and over through Acts and through the epistles in their ministry in the church. And so here's the point I'm trying to make with all of this. There are plenty of opportunities for women to minister in the church. There are plenty of opportunities for ministry that are open to women. But they can't be elders. Okay? That one exclusion is what causes all the problems. Because God told Eve at the curse, from this point on, you will rebel against the authority of your husband. And you're going to try to be in the lead. And that's what we're facing in our society and in our churches today. Women cannot accept the role of support and submission to the authority of the husbands and the leaders in the church that God has ordained from creation, and we've been fighting that battle ever since. They just want to be in the lead. That's what's causing the controversy. And it's a rebellion against God. There's hundreds of opportunities for women to minister, but they're not satisfied with it because they're not satisfied with God's authority structure. And that's where the problem comes from. So that's the point of today's message. Women have all kinds of opportunities to minister in the church. And I've shown you, including even deaconess. Okay? But it has to be under the authority structure that God has given, where men are the leaders and women are in the support role in submission to the authority God has ordained. So here's my last word on this for now. When women stop fighting to get out from under God's authority, they will be much happier serving in the supporting roles that God has given them. There's the summary of women's ministry in the church. Now there's a whole other bunch of questions I don't even have time for. We didn't have time for all of this today, but we got through it. Okay, the questions are going to come up. I know, what about women prophesying? The Bible says women are going to prophesy. Women are going to, you know, speak in tongues and all. I'm going to address that next week. So, again, I'm going to give you the, the hanger or whatever they call it, uh, you know, the, the cliffhanger at the end. Yeah, you got to come back next week to get the next part of it, okay? So we're going to stop there for today so that you can go home and have lunch and enjoy the rest of your afternoon. But God is teaching us, okay? You have to follow Scripture, Because God has given us all the answers. And if we just look at what God has given us, it all makes very clear sense. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you that you love us and that you've given us all the instructions that we need to not just function within the home and in our personal lives, but within the church as well. God, I pray that you would help us to submit ourselves to your authority. That is where the problem starts. That is where all the problems come from. Because we will not submit to your authority in our lives. We want to fight against it. We want to come up with our own plans and our own ways of doing things. But Lord, help us to get back to your truth and to follow you faithfully as we fulfill your your roles for us within your church and within the families. Lord, bless us now as we go. I pray that you can continue to watch over us, keep us safe, and protect us and provide for us according to your great power that you have made known through your Son. And it's in his name that we pray now.
Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed. Thank you.